When I was in college, my roommates and I tried to be people of culture. So, we went to the American Film Institute website to see what movies we should watch. They have a list called the Top 100 Films of All Time. And we began driving to Blockbuster, renting VHS tapes. Remember Blockbuster? Remember VHS tapes? I actually miss video stores. They're kind of magical. We drive down to the library sometimes because those movies were free. And we would just mark off the movies off the list whenever we got through one. If ever you go to the AFI Film Institute's list of the best movies ever, or if you talk to anybody in the cinematic world, they tend to talk about this movie called Citizen Kane. Show of hands, how many of you have ever watched Citizen Kane? A goodly number of you have watched Citizen Kane. It is a masterpiece that I never want to watch again. It broke ground, cinematically speaking, in American film culture. It changed the game. It was written, produced, and directed, and acted, starred in by Orson Welles. It was his first movie. In oh, Citizen Kane... Charles Foster Kane is a mishmash character of William Randolph Hearst and Mr. Pulitzer and other big media magnates of the last century. And in his great mansion in Florida called the Xanadu, he is basically on his deathbed staring at one of those snow globes. It's my in-laws used to call shaky balls. You shake them and the snow goes all over the water. He's staring at this winter landscape and he utters his final word before he dies. And for those of you who know that final word, say it with me. Rosebud. Rosebud. Orson Welles' fictional world frenzies now. Frenzied about wondering what this word could have meant to this great, wealth-privileged, powerful man. Reporters do deep dives and deep cuts into Kane's biography. The movie cuts from his death to the earliest memories he has as a little boy in Colorado where he lived with his mama on a piece of property that would discover gold and that gave some wealth to him, but that's a whole story for another time. There he is outside, the last time you ever see him truly happy, in the snow, pulling his simple little sled. Remember those sleds back in the days, wood top and iron little uh, skates, it, you would, it would hurt to get run into when you're sledding. Up in Illinois, we have things called hills and snow, and, and sometimes you would go sledding down these things, and sometimes kids would run into other kids. This one would hurt you really bad. He was pulling it around, happy, while inside, unbeknownst to him, his mama is trying to figure out with some other character, what would be Charles Foster Kane's future? Where would he live for the rest of his life? Well, at some point, at some point in the film, he inherits a lot of money, and Charles Foster Kane works his way up the ladder. You may have watched the film, or you may have not, but its method of narrative storytelling delivers Hollywood a new way of going about things, you see. Never before until Citizen Kane do you have something starting at the end and bouncing back to the beginning and going to the end and bouncing to the middle where it's out of time, but the 
full narrative emerges by the end. The way it plot twists and turns and surprise endings that was all new with Citizen Kane. It absolutely left an indelible mark on the way Hollywood thinks about doing not only film, but television. I'm not going to explain the whole movie, but let's continue on from his inheritance of a fortune. He began to work for himself in something called yellow journalism. You know what yellow journalism is? exaggerated journalism, it's sensationalized, it's tabloid stuff. It's all the stuff that's meant to sell. And yes, I know that for us today, we're all accustomed to that as being basic, ordinary media. But in an era where journalism still sought to have ethics, all this was new, and it made him an absolute, wealthy, powerful man. He acquired wealth. He went through women. He attained more and more power. He lost his friends. He lost wealth. He lost women. He gained it back. Frankly, Charles Foster Kane lived the kind of life that was focused simply on fulfilling desire. But here's the truth that I'm going to tell you. You can never fulfill desire with amassing things or wealth or using people. And it's a truth you already knew. You didn't have to come here to learn that lesson. You know that you can't buy happiness and what you have you can't take with you. And you know that you cannot have enough. We are creatures of desire, but what we desire is always on the other side of desire itself, it is in the beyond. That's why St. Augustine said, our hearts are empty, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you, O God. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you, O God, because the true object of our desire, the thing or the one which we yearn for is the divine. Elsewhere, St. Augustine writes, there's a God-shaped vacuum in all of us that only God can fill. Now, a more common way of saying that is there's a God-shaped hole in my heart. And you know the old trope. We try to fill that hole with so many things. Self-identity, accolades, jobs, possessions, degrees, drugs, whatever. We try to fill that. We're all hungry, desirous beings trying to fill something we cannot fill inside of us because it's shaped like the shape of God, and only God can meet desire. Here, when we hear the words from this great church father, we find that we are in direct line with the Jesus tradition, the gospel text that was read to us beautifully, Doc, beautifully. Tells us that Jesus was going along one day, and some fellow comes up to him and says, can you convince my brother to split our inheritance in half? Now, I'll not get into all the social weirdness with that question. There is a lot to say there. But Jesus basically rebuffs and says, that's not my job. I'm not the judge or the jury here. And then he cautions the young man about wanting too much and being jealous for things and amassing stuff. Happiness doesn't lie there, no matter how much we think it will. So he says, I'll tell you a parable and this parable is all about a farmer who has too many crops to fit inside his barn. Seems like a good problem. So he wants to knock down his barn 
and build an even bigger barn to place more of his stuff. And then he ends with that line that comes from the Greek philosopher Epicurus, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you will die. We'll be able to have our fill, and it'll be fun, and it'll be great. And then in the words of Jesus, you hear, you fool. You're a fool if you think that's going to make you pleased with yourself. Because you're going to die. You're going to die. You can't take any of it with you. Now, this is Jerry Longbond's translation. You can't take it with you. Someone else is going to have the stuff that you work so hard to hold on to. This text is challenging because it deals with things that, that go against the common sense nature of our world, like saving for retirement, right? And it makes us ask questions about how we hold our possessions and how we hold our wealth and then what happens to our wealth when we die. It implies discussions about inheritance, or not even implies, it just directly speaks of it. Inheritance, that's a tricky thing, isn't it? One of my best friend's father was a widower, and he's a very, very faithful Christian man. Ultimately, one day as a widowed man, he married a woman he probably shouldn't have married. This woman was full, uh, fraught with problems for him and his family's life. Had a rough marriage. Not long ago, he passed away too, and this man had so many wonderful things that his three sons could have in honor of their father. Things that they would love to have as tokens and memories of him things that they could use, whether it was his great set of tools or whether it was his Porsche that he was working on restoring, all these wonderful things he had amassed in his life. Recently, my friend and his brother went to go see their stepmom. They were already adults, so it was kind of weird thinking of them as stepmom, but they went to go see her. And they said, we want to go through some of dad's things. We'd like some of the letters that he and my mom wrote to each other, you know, because they wrote love letters, him and his first wife. We'd like to look at some of his notes uh, from seminary, because he went to seminary too. We'd like to see what he was thinking when he was younger. We'd like his tools. And she said, well, there's a lot of stuff that uh, is in a storage shed. You can go see the storage shed. Uh, but a lot of stuff I gave to my own son. She took the stuff from her husband that should belong to his own kids and gave it to her son. They were upset by that. I could understand why. And I remember thinking to myself, well, when you go to the storage unit, look for that that 30-06 lever action Winchester rifle. Now, I'm not a gun guy, but I, I went out shooting guns with my buddy and his dad once, and this was a Really cool gun. It looked like something Wyatt Earp would use. So I called him up and I said, did you find any of the good stuff? Did you find that 30 out sick? Oh, no. They gave it away and sold it. Inheritances can be tricky. They remind us of the power that possessions do play in our life, for good or for ill. Now, as we continue walking with Jesus in this text, there's that other aspect of it where Jesus responds to the simple question of the inheritance by saying, what business of that is mine? It is as if Jesus is telling a young man, keep me out of it. Keep me out of your family drama. And then let me give you a bit of advice. Life is not marked by our possessions. You all know that, but do we know it here and here? 
We know it between the ears, sure, but do we know it here? Let me tell you how the sausage is made when I make a sermon up sometimes. I don't put pen to paper till Thursday, Friday, Saturday, but I work on it all week. And one of the ways I work on it is after I study something, I like to take long walks. So we're in the middle of the, the, the pandemic where the, the pandemic had its like, fingers around our neck the hardest, you know? I, I was thankful that I lived here in Georgia and we had nice weather, so I could go outside. And I walked around the loop around my neighborhood about 40 times just thinking, thinking of ideas, praying. I walked around the corner and I saw it. On this side of the road, there were three Amazon trucks. On that side of the road were three FedEx trucks. I took a photo of it because it was so absurd. I thought logistics was like a big business in our country. Couldn't they have figured out how to put it all on one truck? And as I was making fun of it in my head about three Amazon trucks at one house, three FedEx trucks at another house, I got back to Loop, got to my house, and there was a mountain full of boxes in front of the door. <laughs> Something really mm, endorphin boosting about buy, 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 buy. But as soon as you hit the button, and as soon as you have it, it's gone. You gotta, put, you gotta hit the buy thing to get that endorphin rush. When I was walking that very day, I ran into one of our neighbor friends, this little girl's friends with my daughters, and her parents have Teslas. And one of my, my neighbor, who's the class clown of the neighborhood, calls them Mr. and Mrs. Tesla. And um, so Mr. and Mrs. Tesla exchanged a Tesla for like the highest end Mercedes you can get. And I noticed because I saw him drive down the road. And I thought, oh, that's a nice car. And so I said, hey, sweetheart, did your daddy get a new car? I mean, it's, it's such a high-end Mercedes. The, the, the car seat actually massages you when you drive. I'm not kidding. I don't know how that's not illegal. It'd put me to sleep. Wouldn't it put you to sleep? It gives you a massage. It also tells you how good you are, how smart you are, how much people like you. So he's driving his Mercedes down the road. I said, hey, honey, did your daddy get a new car? She goes, yes, he finally got one of luxury. I said, Lord bless the man that will marry this little girl. She's sweet. Life is not marked by what we possess, says Jesus. And then he gives a parable of what the, the scholar Tom Long, who we've had here in this pulpit, we've had him at our leadership retreat, he says parables are really like riddles because they're meant to expose deep truths. Talks about that farmer who has too much for his storehouse, so he's going to knock it down and build bigger storehouses. And all of that seems rather prudent to me. But again, Jesus calls him the fool because he cannot possibly enjoy everything that he will amass in his world. And I wonder, can you enjoy everything that you own too? What's it all for? I once went on a trip up to the Wisconsin Dells, this place called the House in the Rock. Anybody ever been to the House in the Rock? Now, I'll be frank with you. I tried to study about it last night to understand it because I still don't get it. It's a house in a rock. So you walk in, it, it's a house in a rock. I, you should laugh. I mean, it's ridiculous. You walk in and there's a sofa made out of a... So I think it was just kind of showy. I have no idea. I have no idea the point of it. And I'm walking through, and it's like, okay, this is kind of neat. Somebody thought to themselves, I'm going to make a house in a rock. I, I don't know why you do that, but okay, you do you. And then you exit the back of it, and now you're in warehouses that belong to the person who owned the house in the rock. Warehouses just full of stuff. 
and you just walk around looking in black, behind glass windows of stuff, like 20,000 like horses that, you know, on a carousel, just lined up, you're like, why? How many slinkies do you need to show people when they come to visit your house that's in a rock? Now, I don't mean to be judgmental. If I've got this way wrong, people who built the house on the rock, I'm so sorry. I just couldn't figure it out. But I just wonder, what's the point of having stuff? What's the point of all of it? Why does God even give you the ability to have things? Aquinas would say that the only reason why Christians should be allowed private property is to use it to help other people. Well, anyway, there's an irony to this great film, Citizen Kane, which, by the way, I brought this up here. This is a gift to me from a person in my last church. This is actually a bit of film from that film itself. Uh, I've carried it with me wherever I go, not because I want to watch the film all the time. Again, I never want to see it again. I've seen it, been there, done that. It's not like The Godfather. It's, this is, got to put this one over here. But I take it with me because how much this has changed the way we make films and tell stories. So I keep it with me. There's an irony to America's love affair with Citizen Kane, because it's absolutely changed everything about that entire industry that shapes all of our lives. Even if you don't own a television, you are shaped by what Hollywood makes, because you're shaped by culture, and it shapes culture. The irony came about by one of my professors, who now lives in South Atlanta, and he taught philosophy and he published a piece where he said the great irony is that America and the Hollywood world has taken to the world of Citizen Kane and let it transform it. And it's taken to its method. It's aesthetic. But we have denied its moral. Let me say that again. America has accepted the aesthetic of Citizen Kane, but has denied its moral. Because when you watch the film, spoiler, and as I told the 9 o'clock service, this movie's so old, if you haven't watched it, that's your fault. Spoiler. As he lies on his deathbed looking at that snow globe saying, Rosebud, and then dies, he's surrounded by nobody but the hired help. And they begin to take a lot of his junk and throw it on a heap of coals, burning it down. Which, by the way, with the stuff we amass in life, and... Uh, that's the end it often meets by our own loved ones. All the stuff we collect ends up in the heap. They find that old sled that he drug around at the beginning of the film, the last time he was happy. And they carry it over to the fire and they toss it on and then the camera pans down closer to that sled and on the sled is the word, Rosebud the last time he was happy. Before the wealth, before the things, before the prestige, before the power, before all he could collect, it was the simple joy. It was the simple thing. The message for today is simple, and you already know it, but be reminded of it. You can't take it with you. The things that you have didn't define you they may control you, but they don't define you. Jesus calls this young man, and Jesus is calling you, and Jesus is calling me to invest in what matters. First is our own relationship to God. And second, 
are the relationships we build with one another, the things that last, the memories we share, the laughs we have together, the cries that we shoulder for each other, the embraces and the love. It's the relationship that we have to the earth itself, to the land, and our commitment to be stewards and priests of creation. It is that which lasts that matters. For those things, I think we will take with us here and beyond.